Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Denver on April 8, 2010. The recording features Ofer Ziv, David Shields, Michael Thomas, Danzi Senna, and Cornelius Eady. Welcome. I'm Ofer from uh, Blue Flower Arts. Uh, we are presenting this afternoon's reading with David Shields, Michael Thomas, Denzi Senna, and Cornelius Eady. I'll first um, present the authors tonight and um, in the order in which they will read and then tell you a little bit about the uh, theme today. David Shields is the author of The Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead. He began his career by publishing fiction and slowly moved toward nonfiction as his main vehicle of creative expression. In his most recent book, Reality Hunger, a manifesto, he argues that the lyric essay is the literary form that gives the author the best opportunity for rigorous investigation because its theater is the world, the mind contemplating the world, and it offers no consoling dream world, no exit door. In Reality Hunger, Shield's reality-based art hijacks its material from other artists and doesn't apologize. There are no longer such things as fiction or nonfiction, he writes. There's only narrative. And then he adds, is there even narrative? Second reader will have Michael Thomas, who is the author of the novel Man Gone Down, winner of the 2009 Impact Dublin Literary Award. In Man Gone Down, the protagonist is a 35-year-old African-American man who we find broke and estranged from his white wife and three children, fighting his predestined reality marked by abandonment and alcohol abuse. Though the novel is not autobiographical, there are certain surface similarity between Thomas and his creative protagonist, as he follows the path not taken to explore what might have been in an America who wants to keep the poor in his place. His compelling narrative turns to nonfiction as he tells the story of the four generations of men in the Thomas family in his forthcoming memoir, um, The Broken King. Third is Danzi Senna, who is the author of two novels, Caucasia, the story of two biracial sisters growing up in racially charged Boston, and Symptomatic, her second novel, which continues to examine the complicated issue of race. She is the author of the memoir, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Exploring the stories of her parents, a white woman with a blue blood Bostonian lineage and a black man raised by a struggling single mother. Senna discovered an abundance of written records telling her mother's story, while her father's family history was completely unknown. She finds that she cannot tell her father's story without ruminating about her own life and the fortitudes of a predestined narrative. Fourth and last, we'll have Cornelius Eady, who is a poet, a playwright, and soon a memoirist. His seven books of poetry include Brutal Imagination, which is comprised of two cycles of poems, early co each confronting the subject of the black man in white America. His most recent collection is Hard-Headed Weather, where he brings a voice of laughter, beauty, and melancholy 
to his small town in upstate New York, finding furniture on the streets of New York City and memories of friends who have passed away. His work is a glossary of earthly objects and human events, and his linguistic responses provide pleasure even when they are provoked by injustice, pain, or loss. He is currently working on a memoir focusing on his childhood years growing up in Rochester when he was just beginning to get interested in poetry. Our theme tonight, to this afternoon, um, is the real and the imagined, easing the boundaries between fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. When we read a story, anecdote, or poem, we immediately ask ourselves, is this real? Did this really happen? This curiosity, our need to categorize the fiction and nonfiction, exists not only for the sake of knowing where to find a book in the bookstore, but because of our inherent desire to decipher true from false, the real from the imagined. But we all know that many works of fiction are heavily based on reality, and that all memoirs adulterate the truth with the author's subjectivity and the fluidity of memory. To quote one of the passages about writing from David Shields' Reality Hunger, there isn't the pretense that you try to arrive at the literal truth. And the only consolation when you confess to the flaw is that you are seeking to arrive at a poetic truth, which can be reached only through fabrication, imagination, and stylization. We might then want to re-examine our definition of truth and the way we look at literary genres. The wonderful writers you are about to hear will read each from two genres, fiction and nonfiction, nonfiction and poetry. We invite you to listen to their narratives and to allow the boundaries of reality to blur a bit as they seek a different kind of truth. Please join me in welcoming David Shields, Michael Thomas, Denzi Senna, and Cornelius Eady. Thank you, Ofer and Allison, for organizing this event. And thank you, Ofer, for those kind and thoughtful words. I'm, I'm going to read um, from a chapter from my book, Reality Hunger. The, um, the chapter is called Trials by Google. And um, I'm just going to read from a portion of the book, or a portion of the chapter, which is a portion of of the book. And the only thing else I wanted to add was that, um, that when I read aloud, I sometimes stutter a bit, and I like to sort of come out and say that. I suppose the topic is about trying to ease the boundaries, so this is my attempt to ease the boundaries, I guess, between fluency and disfluency. So without further ado, I shall read Trials by Google. This chapter used to be named after James Fry, but along came, at pretty much the same time, J.T. Leroy, then Misha de Fonseca, Margaret Seltzer, Herman Rosenblatt. Similar phenomena kept arriving again and again, like the next scheduled train. That million-dollar, career-exploding, trick tease train of these so-called misery lit, also called misery porn memoirs, first praised, then shamed, each taking its turn on the double-crested roller coaster 
of celebrity and infamy. This just in, Oprah Winfrey duped again. <laughs> it's become a national tradition, each fallout more engrossing than the book itself. James Fry's freshman year heartsickness becomes a desperado run-in with the law. Getting caught with a tall boy of PBR becomes his role as head of an Ivy League cocaine cartel. His incarceration at Hazleton, brought on by his parents' concern and perhaps their own inability to discipline effectively, becomes his last chance against an addiction that is certain to consume him. The process of aggrandizement, relatively ordinary problems are overblown into larger than life literature. We too can make a myth of our own meager circumstances. The J.T. Leroy phenomenon turned out to be a hoax, an immensely enjoyable one at that, exposing our confusion between love and art and publicity. People were made fools of, which is useful because a good hoax is like a good con. Though a con liberates the mark from some of his material things, it also teaches him how easily he was tricked how ready he was to believe certain stories. To quote, wisen the mark is to send him back into the world a little less wide-eyed, a little more jaded, his vision now penetrating beyond the surface of things. To enlighten us, a good hoax or con must eventually be revealed. When Fry Leroy de Fonseca, Seltzer, Rosenblatt, Wilkomirsky et al. wrote their books. Of course, they made things up. Who doesn't? Each one said, sure, call it a novel, call it a memoir. Who's going to care? I don't want to defend Fry, per se. He's a terrible writer. <laughs> but the very nearly pornographic obsession with his and similar cases reveals our degree of nervousness on the topic. The whole huge loud roar as it returns again and again has to do with the culture being embarrassed at how much it wants the frame of reality and within that frame, great drama. The J.T. Leroy Contretemps will write some novels, have someone pretend to be him so that we have a huge backstory, which is what gives the whole thing a claim on anyone's heart. No one gives a damn anymore about the novel, per se, or the Garrett-bound artist struggling with his, quote, truth narrative. Contemporary narration is the account of the manufacturing of the work, not the actual work. What I'm interested in, the startling fragment left over from the manufactured process, not the work itself, but the story of the marketed, the marketed incident, the whole industry surrounding a work's buzz. We want the vertiginous details. If you think the heart 
if you think the heart is deceitful above all things, you should meet the author. A frankly fictional account would rob the memoir counterfeiter, his or her publishers, and the audience of the opportunity to attach a face to the angst. What if America isn't really the sort of place where a street urchin can charm his way to the top through diligence and talent? What if instead it's the sort of place where heartwarming stories about abused children who triumph through adversity are made up and marketed? J.T. Leroy was nothing more or less than a highly developed pen name. Margaret Seltzer wanted so badly not to be the person she was, an upper middle class girl from the valley, that she imagined herself all the way into strangers' lives and cared so much about bringing attention to those lives that she phrased it as memoir because relatively few people care about novels anymore. Misha de Fonseca, author of the Holocaust memoir, Surviving with Wolves, pretty much the same thing. Fry's narrative. Frat boy in free fall arises from misanthropy and is salvaged by literary industry, which is now a subset of multimedia saturation, of which Oprah forms a higher denomination. Oprah Cam tells us that we are all abused in some way, but we need arbiters to sift through the dirt for the story that can be marketed as emblematic. We begged Fry to produce self-flagellating myth, and he complied. Fry and millions behind him line up to humiliate themselves for the sole purpose of being marketed. It's so common to expect an abuse story that we have to stifle our yawns when we hear of further deceit, recrimination, backstabbing. Fry, that, that Puritan, witnessed what it means to be senseless while on drugs, but he can't admit that he was having fun. He made more sense when he was wasted. Fry was crucified for a handful of inaccuracies in no way essential to the character and spirit of the book. All our sins were passed onto unto him. Violence implies redemption. Our sudden hate for Fry was due to the fact that he didn't hurt himself badly or violently enough to justify himself as self-perpetrator. Proust said that he had no imagination. What he wanted was reality infused with something else. In Search of Lost Time, begins and ends with the actual thoughts of the actual author. It's the manifestation of what the author must think based on what he does in fact think. The book, by being about Marcel, a writer, is as much about the writing as it is about anything that, quote, happens. I don't mean that everything we think is what we truly feel or that only in thought are we free of the lies and illusions of the world. I mean that if you have, I, I mean that you have a right as a thinking person to think what you think 
and that the closer you stick to the character of thought in your writing, the more license you have to claim that you're not making things up. Fry, for example, wrote but didn't think. I was in prison for three months. Instead, he probably thought something more like, I was in prison for three months, man. I was in fucking prison for three months. Give it to them. Throw it down their throats. They'll take it. They don't know what I went through. I'm tough. Goes to the mirror to make sure, etc. That is, he made up the prison part. He fictionalized it without first admitting to having done so. What I want to do is take the banality of nonfiction, the literalness of facts, truth, and reality, turn that banality inside out, and thereby make nonfiction a staging area for the investigation of, of any claims of facts and truth, an extremely rich theater for investigating the most serious epistemological questions. The lyric essay is the literary form that gives the writer the best opportunity for rigorous investigation because its theater is the world, the mind contemplating the world and offers no consoling dream world, no exit door. Defending a million little pieces Oprah said, although some of the facts have been questioned, the underlying message of redemption in James Fry's memoir still resonates with me. However, a few days later, clearly influenced by her miffed audience, she apologized for leaving the impression that the truth doesn't matter. Stoic marketing plan. On TV, ingest a ton of shit, a form of abuse, and transcend it by finding the product that catapults you off the couch into another lie. I mean, another life. Celebrity. Oprah has, Oprah has created around herself a cult of confession that offers only one prefix menu to those who enter her world. First, the teasing crudité of the situation, sinner sorrow hinted at. The entree is the deep confession or revelation. Next, a, pal next, a palate cleansing sorbet of regret and repentance, the delicious forgiveness served by Oprah on behalf of all humanity. F fade to commercial as the sobbing witness who has revealed harm done to or by an uncle or neighbor through carelessness, neglect, evil intent, or ignorance is applauded by the audience, comforted by Oprah. Her instincts are fine, her integrity unquestioned, and she would never tell us a story that isn't true. I'm disappointed not that Fry is a liar, but that he isn't a better one. 
he should have said, everyone who writes about himself is a liar. I created a person meaner, funnier, and more filled with life than I could ever be. He could have talked about the peril between a writer's persona and the public persona that Oprah presents to the world. Instead, he showed up for his whipping. When Fry appeared on Oprah the final time, performing Harry Carey, many of, of the nation's newsrooms were tuned in. Even choosing what to include in a straightforward memoir involves a substantial exercise of creative license. Journalists, though, don't seem too hip to this way of thinking, bad for their business, and they have a monopoly, or rather had a monopoly on popular discourse. In the aftermath of the Million Little Pieces outrage, Random House reached a tentative settlement with readers who felt defrauded by Fry. <clears throat> to receive a refund, Hoodwink customers had to mail in a piece of the book. For, hardcover, for hardcover owners, it was page 163. <laughs> Those with paperback copies were required to actually tear off the front cover and send it in. Also, readers had to sign a sworn statement confirming that they had bought the book with the belief that it was a real memoir. Or, in other words, that they felt bad accidentally having read a novel. <laughs> In 2009, Oprah reversed herself again, apologizing to Fry for publicly humiliating him. Meanwhile, Fry, working with another writer, anonymously shopped around a young adult novel called I Am Number Four which is about a group of nine alien teenagers on a planet called Lorien. Fry was born and raised in Cleveland, not far from Lorraine, Ohio, a small city that is predominantly African-American and is Toni Morrison's hometown. Attacked by a hostile race from another planet, the nine aliens and their guardians evacuate to Earth, where three are killed. The protagonist, a Lorian boy named John Smith, hides in Paradise, Ohio, disguised as a human, trying to evade his predators and knowing he's next on their list. Fry is also working on Illumination, the last testament of the Holy Bible, a novel about a lapsed Orthodox Jew who suffers an accident and wakes up thinking that he's the Messiah. Capitalism implies and induces insecurity, which is constantly being exploited, of course, by all sorts of people selling things. Therapy lit, victim lit, faux helpful talk shows, self-help books. All of these prey on our essential insecurity. The great book, though, for instance, per Fernando Pessoa's The Book of Disquiet takes us down into the deepest levels of human insecurity 
and there we find that we all dwell. Autobiography at its very best is a serious handshake or even full embrace between the writer willing to face him or herself and the reader doing the same. At a lower level, of course, it's just a sentimental narrative about fall and forgiveness. Thank you, David. I want to thank uh, Allison Ofer and uh, all the Hunter people I see who've come from New York City. You can jump up now. Um, so this memoir, I guess it's dubbed a memoir, and I always uh, make this uh, point, is a, a group of collected essays, which doesn't sound very sellable. Um, so we'll call it a memoir. But in this series of essays, uh, it's about um, my, my two sons, my brother, my father, and my um, paternal grandfather. And uh, what I'm going to read uh, to you is a section from the first section, which is Primo. The first one's about my oldest son. The second one is about my older brother. His name is David. And David and I have had these strange divergent paths. Uh, when Grove Atlantic bought my book, he was pinched uh, for grand larceny and crack possession. Um, I think when I won the Dublin Prize, he was pinched for grand larceny and crack possession. Uh, my brother and I have never really gotten along. And so this book explores a number of things, uh, obviously fathers and sons and brothers, but also, I think, as David mentioned, what narrative is, what story is, and what memory is. And my disclaimer is that I've had numerous head injuries, so I don't really remember anything, clearly. <laughs> so I can't be lying. So this chapter is uh, called Frankie, and Frankie has uh, a history. And I'm just one of my head injury uh, problems is that I have to go on tangents and explain things over and over. So I should read you the whole book. But anyway, Frankie, uh, two meanings. One, there's a Bruce Springsteen song. The refrain is, I got a brother named Frankie. Frankie ain't no good. I got a brother named Frankie, even though his name is David. But it also asks the question, you know, what do you do? What kind of person turns his back on his family, right? He's no good. The other thing is my uh, best friend from high school and I, uh, when we sobered up, we used to drive around Boston, and every screwhead we'd see, we'd yell out of the car window, hey, Frankie, why don't you straighten up and fly right? Invariably, the screwhead would just turn. And, so that's the other thing about Frankie. And you should try. Just yell Frankie at somebody. They'll turn around. <laughs> it could be anyone. Uh, so, so this uh, chapter is called Frankie. Uh, I guess the backstory is... Uh, my wife and I are going broke. We have a house that's falling over in Brooklyn. We rented another house. And I'm uh, engaged in bank fraud, trying to get like triple mortgages and construction loans for a house that doesn't really exist. Uh, so 9-11 uh, has just uh, happened. And I have my mother-in-law's car, and I have to drive it from New York City to Atlanta. And I thought I was going to fly back, but obviously I'm not going to do this. Uh, my brother, who had been house-sitting for us after 
falling from real estate scams to imprisonment to uh, numerous things. We had just had this renaissance as brothers. But uh, when we got back after, uh, after him house-sitting, we found that he had uh, run up a $600 phone bill and paraphernalia. And uh, he had found, he likes credit cards, so he had run some credit card scam and uh, bought lots of food from takeout places. And my wife was getting the phone calls. My wife's name is Michael. Um, there's a lot of quotes from Baldwin, Elliot, and Sam Cook. I guess I'll start there. We were to leave that in that evening, post-rush hour, drive through the night, and close in on Atlanta by dawn before the gridlock of that urban sprawl. Change the oil, pick up the rental, drop off at Sally's, perhaps a quick meal, head back to New York, and arrive before midnight, a little over 1,700 miles in 24 hours. Michael had nodded through my planning, but faced with my departure, looked from me to my brother with open fear. I knew her concerns, crash, cops, and we were taking the inland route and back then on the edge of the last century before our post-racial society, midnight rambling black men weren't guaranteed safe passage. Forget the Virginias, she, I, were worried about slipping through Jersey undetected. More than that, the children, our finances, the burned old world and the precarious new. I just stopped drinking and hadn't professionally really gotten anything together. I was about to spend a day with my brother, and there was bound to be some fallout. Most likely, I'd come home enraged, and she'd have to suffer, bear the collateral damage of my anger. The Thomas children aren't yellers. We brood, seethe, and then explode at something that would seem quite small, disproportionate anger in the form of destructive action. For me, I turn that anger on myself. No food, no sleep self-sabotage, a bender. She'd heard the stories, our childhood, our adolescence, our bond in mayhem, more, more, more. She'd seen him slip, seen my closest friends, too, fall, disappear. She'd seen, in part, my college drinking, anecdotally knew about some of my psychosis, lived with my alcoholism for five years, dealt with my sobriety for the last seven, the acute withdrawal, the two years of scrambled brains, the sudden clarity after three clean years, the newer, perhaps more alien form of narcissism and fury the psychological and emotional state of my realization of living among the breakage. A brand new kind of remorse and shame, but this one, this condition, without the buffering or diffusing filter of alcohol and optimism. My history, my strange Byzantine ambitions and plans joined with such clarity, seeing my repeating cycles, drunk or sober, crazy or sane, they all, no matter the environment or the stakes, all seem to share futility. They had all failed, or I had failed them. Only days removed from a small apocalypse, dwindling assets and growing debt, shaky car and the past rumbling in my rear view, a pyroclastic cloud closing the gap and gathering speed and size, amorphous, noxious fire and ash. The dark road with my brother would be the perfect place for a fall. Or perhaps she imagined us coming back mended, fraternal deviance or delusion, some doomed venture. We made it through Jersey without incident. We had, time to we had time to talk about what had happened, how we'd got to be here in the night speeding west, so much to talk about, but no means by which to do so. Silence. I'd convinced myself that I wasn't interested in what happened to either of us. 
I've always thought, even as a child, that trying to construct and articulate a narrative that explains things, either to demonize or absolve people or events, was absurd. I've heard too many. Ham and the rationalization of the African slave trade, why black people were inherently flawed or inherently noble, the up-south migration in the cities of destruction in which we all came to live, monolith after monolith, the static to understand the dynamic, our experience is something useful either to others or ourselves, why Jesus is white, or black, why he's real or not, how white people built everything and have dominion over this earth. But most narratives, because the purpose behind their construction and telling, in the end, facts metamorphosed to serve a predetermined end rather than a journey which leaves us even momentarily with a new consideration transitory. For me, especially with my brother then and now, I could not, cannot really tell it baffled, confounded by the indecipherable run of blood. I can speak about heredity, environment, our different, insane, trilling wires, but they will never explain, equip me with a certainty, that twist of muscle, how our skin reacts to the rain or sun or wind, how we somehow are, after all we witness and bear, arrive at our now, and then how we witness and bear the now. Oh, how we are compressed by the pressure of piled time. Oh, how we are or are not transformed. I had a girlfriend in college who told me our story as individuals and as us, and it gave her license to dump me. Perhaps this is my story, the defining event that caused me to doubt or validate my reality. I've never understood that the aim of the story could be communion, intimacy, because if we really experience intimacy, at best, don't we do so alongside another, a parallel experience? Don't we feel it alone? All I really about know about music is that most people never really hear it. Again, if we hear it, isn't it because it corroborates our sensibilities, our own story? And if this is true, and if this is true, story is nothing more than a clannish anthem. It functions as sign rather than symbol, a didactic claim rather than a longing yop. Is anybody out there? Can anybody hear me, even with my foreign tongue? Even though you might not want to? Where is my brother? Even on the dark highway, the story can never mean this or that. We don't manipulate it. It doesn't manipulate our audience. We at best wrestle with the devices, those elements by which our tales are attenuated. The trying, the rest is not our business. But perhaps this is nothing more than my attempt to explain why I stayed quiet. Credence got us across the Jersey border in a soul collection through the East Pennsylvania Flats. Al Green, how can you mend a broken heart up and into the mountains? I preoccupied myself by constantly checking the mileage and the time and our speed, calculating and recalculating our arrival, lost in obsession, and doing 70, 75, 80, which was better, safer, within the law, but more time exposed or less time. A state trooper would see us only from the side, but perhaps would never get the chance if we stayed far enough ahead. At least it kept me from concentrating on him. I think somewhere by 84 he took over, but I'm not sure how we made that decision. Grunts or nods or sentence fragments, the sometimes magical, sometimes alienating shorthand we use with those to whom we don't need to speak or to those who we don't want to speak to but must. 
the grunt, the quick look, worse than any platitude or euphemism. Familiarity, along with contempt, breeds and sustains our strangeness. I don't like talking to many people, and I'm not sure if I can. Most of my interactions, other than with my wife, children, and closest friends, are performative. I'm either the speaker or the listener. For me to speak is to lecture or to engage in a monologue which can morph into a soliloquy or simply talking to myself an improvised audible prayer to a silent introspection. And those with whom I share the stage move from the platform to the audience, out the doors and they're gone. Or of course, the inverse, I'm not there. Or I listen or I pretend to half pretend. I can hear most people's opening lines and extrapolate the rest because the tale of how we suffer. The particulars don't matter. If I need them later, I can ask concerned from wherever it is my mind is, it moves my body or keeps it still accordingly, enough to let whomever I know I'm there. You're such a good listener. Like this, I can listen to almost anyone for a very long time. This is a product of my great discomfort with others, with myself. It's not that I'm bored or aloof. I do feel for people, what they say and do, what's been done to them. Affection and sometimes passion, but rarely compassion. Nothing shared, a partial love. I cannot get close enough. I do not know how, and so I will not be close because when in the middle I feel so lonely and frustrated that I want to gouge out my eyes, tear off my skin. And I didn't want to be lectured by him. I didn't want to hear his introspections or confessions. I didn't want him, I didn't want to be his shrink or his priest, so we drove. He asked rhetorical questions about the socks, and we avoided everything, our childhood, our sister, our parents, our previous, current, and future conditions, even the smoking ruin we wish we left behind. More music got us through, but after Smokey Robinson's greatest hits, I had only Dylan blood on the tracks, I was reluctant to put it on. I can't stand listening to Dylan around others, even people who claim to like him. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want them to talk over him. I want it. I still want to share, but not near me. I could never articulate what the music means, meant to me. My explanations are too long, convoluted, entirely dependent on synthesizing my then and now, who I was, who I am, how he and others helped shape me. Dylan, Hendricks, Marley, Green, Gay, Wonder, Redding, Aretha, Simone, Cohen, Johnson, Leadbelly, Guthrie, Odetta, Holiday, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Glenn Campbell, Hank Williams, Armstrong, Coltrane, Davis, Lennon, McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Gamble and Huff, The Motor City, Muscle Shoals, Homer, Virgil, Clitutis, Anansi, Shakespeare, Keats, Blake, Melville, Whitman, Yates, Emerson, Thoreau, David Walker, Douglas, Du Bois, Johnson, Toomer, Hurston, Joyce, Faulkner, McCullough, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, Sophocles, Kierkegaard, Camus, Seuss, Mark Strummer, Cummings, Plath, Hansbury, Parks, King, Carmichael, Baraka, Ellison, Fitzgerald, and Baldwin, Jackie Robinson, Bill Russell, Ted Williams, Jesse Owens, Josh Gibson, Carl Yaskremski, Larry Bird, Christ, Gandhi, Elliot, Elliot, Elliot. They had been there, were there, would continue to be so. Electric, inspirational, healing, if only temporarily. Whatever I experienced, realized under their core was enduring enough to span the gaps of grief. They were there. I was there. We, via what they made, were there without the anguish of a failed intimacy, more real in the things I needed, unreal in the things I couldn't bear. They were my family, my siblings, my parents, my guardians and guides. 
Being alone with them, I was transformed by them. Their individual and collective narratives were beautiful, synthesized, an incorruptible weave of thought, sense, witnessing, testimony. If I could touch the hem of his garment, then I would be whole once more. Not the Godhead's mysterious trinity. What they made was more than a pattern fabric, not something I hoped to touch, but something which touched me that which not only removed the intolerable shirt of flame, but that which wove the mail into me, protected me from those extremes which my flesh cannot endure. The hand, the shirt, the armor too. Love, love, love. There, here, elsewhere, everywhere, if only for the briefest times, long enough to try again. But mostly, I just wanted to sing, stereo full volume, my voice full-throated, following him up as he stretched up and down for those unreachable notes. What each passage would make me feel. Here and gone, everything and nothing, private, decadent, indulgent, those things I couldn't be in the full view of others. The music, while the music lasts. Triumphant, I suppose, stopping, rewinding over and over a section, an entire song, trying to recreate the ecstatic moment of holy being me, holy, holy salvation. And I could never sing around anyone. My voice only sounds any good when I'm alone. For me, David was the worst person to sing around, though that's odd because he probably was, is the least judgmental person I know when it comes to such things. He's never been afraid to croon or bellow anywhere in front of anyone and wanted anyone, everyone to join in. And he loved to sing awful songs, not that his musical taste was all bad. He introduced me to the Kings, Zeppelin, many of the white groups of the 70s, four years older, he gave me access to music my friends, white and black, were yet to or would never discover. He showed me how to listen to whole albums instead of the singles I heard on the radio. But he played David's soul. Don't give up on us, baby. And so many awful ballads in the 70s, the 80s were worse. Billy Squire, Rick Springfield, and the early emos, Spandau Ballet, The Cure, Roxy Music, over and over, the robotic trickle, often with a dance. It seemed to me that he hadn't left those performances we'd as children put on for adults at family gatherings. It was as if he was rehearsing for something that none of us watching knew was coming. And though I hated the music, I was compelled by him. How bold, shameless, openly celebratory, joyful, sharing, or perhaps like me, since we are brothers and share deep into ourselves most thing, it was, is, his way of trying not to suffer his method of living among the breakage, if only for a moment without wanting to die. Thanks. Thank you, um, Allison and Ofer, and uh, it's wonderful to be reading with these great authors. Um, what I thought I would do is just read um, a short a scene from my memoir, um, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which is primarily about my father and uh, my family history, and then read a short scene from a new novel that I'm, uh, that's forthcoming called Other Languages Are All We Have. And both scenes um, involve fathers and daughters and just put them out there. This is from the memoir. There is a true story about my father and me that I've been trying to turn into fiction for years. 
I've written drafts of short stories that are versions of this tale, but hard as I try, I am never satisfied with the results. Perhaps I am too attached to the real story, unwilling to depart from the truth of what happened in order to turn it into satisfying fiction. Perhaps I am too afraid of transforming the details, somehow resistant to getting that necessary distance, afraid the real will be swallowed into the imagined. Or perhaps it is because what I am remembering is already fiction, the way all memories become fiction over time. The story itself involves a preposterous lie. It was the only time I could remember when I, as a child, went off to do anything alone with my father. My father had received a piece of junk mail, a letter from a timeshare resort company informing him that he was the lucky winner of one of three prizes, a sports car, a movie camera, or a knife set. The prizes were a lure, of course. The letter stated that in order to claim the prize, he had to visit the timeshare headquarters in New Hampshire and go on a tour of the model property there. The letter stipulated that it was an invitation only for married couples, no singles or students, and furthermore, married couples had to tour the property together. My father called and told us about the prizes. He knew he wouldn't get the car, but maybe we'd get one of the other things. We kids wanted that movie camera and begged him to go claim it for us, but he needed a wife, and my mother wasn't interested in playing that part. Somehow, I'm not sure how the discussions went, we all decided that I would go and pretend to be his wife. I was at the time 12 years old and decidedly androgynous, flat chest, mushroom-cut hairstyle, more interested in horses than boys. The day of our big date came, and my sister did my makeup while I sat wearing one of my great-aunt Helen's silk blouses from the trunk of old clothes we'd inherited. My sister went overboard. She smeared on foundation, rouge, mascara, eyeshadow, and fuchsia lipstick. She teased my hair, hoping to make me look less prepubescent. She put me in a giant coat and put one of my mother's wide-rimmed straw summer hats on my head, still hoping to disguise the fact that I was 12. I looked like a 12-year-old truck stop whore. My father beeped from outside. He looked at me slightly askance when I approached his car. I felt anxious as I got into the passenger seat. I wasn't used to being alone with him. My sister and my brother were always with me, cushioning me on both sides. Now he and I, husband and wife, drove north out of Boston toward the timeshare resort. My father drove with his head cocked to the side and thought, his arms slung over the back of the seat, listening to the news on the radio. He seemed as uncomfortable alone with me as I was with him. He kept glancing at me, troubled, it seemed, by what he saw. He asked me a few questions about school, and as I spoke, he interrupted me. It's your voice, he said. That's the giveaway. You talk like a kid. They'll figure it out only if you speak. So I shouldn't speak, I said? Yeah, you shouldn't speak. He was quiet then, thinking, his eyes on the stretch of interstate ahead. He looked back at me after a moment. I've got it. You don't speak English. You don't speak a word of English. That's why you can't talk. That's why you're so quiet. He nodded his head. We're Puerto Rican. He chuckled. We're from Ponce de Leon. You're my child bride. I'm a Puerto Rican who went home and married a 12-year-old kid. He began to laugh. And you barely speak a word of English. I'm your new husband, and you don't speak a lick of English. He was laughing now, and so was I at the, the sick ingenuity of it. Just keep your clap shut, he said, and let me do the talking. 
For the rest of the drive, he practiced speaking in Spanish. It was terrible, sounded Slavic. He didn't speak any Spanish, but he tried to pepper his speech with common phrases that, he had, that had been swallowed up into the larger American culture. Hola, si, si, taco, burrito, enchilada, Puerto Vallarta. He'd never been to Puerto Rico, but he liked the name of the town he'd heard of, Ponce de Leon. He pronounced it Ponce de Leon. As we drove, a manic excitement gathered in the car. Behind my nervousness was excitement. I was leaving the world of relative safety behind, my mother's world, for something dangerous. I was 12 and didn't understand the full twisted nature of our pantomime, me dressing as my father's child bride, but I understood in some ineffable way that we were breaking the law. Our tour guide at the New Hampshire resort headquarters was a 30-something white woman in a beige business suit who did a double take when my father, in his mangled Spanish accent, introduced me to her as his wife. She blushed and laughed and coughed and said more than once, your wife is so young, Mr. Senna, as she drove us slowly around the property in a silver sedan. My father sat beside her in the passenger seat. I sat in the back seat, sweltering in my overcoat and wide-brimmed hat and the silk clothes and makeup. She glanced at me in the rearview mirror from time to time as she went on and on in a memorized, monotone spiel about the benefits of going timeshare. So you see, Mr. Senna, it allows men like yourself and your wife to stay at some of the world's finest resort properties and luxury condos without having to buy the property or pay expensive resort rentals. My father nodded, impatient to get to the gifts. See, see, sounds very nice. Is that the word, nice? His accent had deteriorated, and he moved in and out of having one and not having one. The woman said at one point, your wife is so quiet, Mr. Senna. She speaks no English, she told the woman. She just moved here from Puerto Rico. The woman eyed me where I sat drenched in sweat. I could glimpse my own face beside hers in the rearview mirror. My makeup had smudged. I had raccoon circles around my eyes. The foundation my sister had applied was too light and too orange for my skin. I was hot, but I was afraid to take off my coat for fear she would see my stick thin, clearly prepubescent body. I tried to open the window, but the tour guide had enabled the childproof lock so it wouldn't go down. How old is she exactly, the woman asked as we pulled up in front of the mock-up property. Eighteen, my father said, climbing out of the car. Legal. He stood with his chest puffed out, arms akimbo, surveying the property like he was really considering buying it. In the end, when the tour was over, the woman told us we had a choice of the two bottom cheapest gifts, the knife set or the movie camera. No car, huh, my father said. I thought we were getting a car out of this. The woman apologized that we weren't getting the car. She then suggested to him in a conspiratorial voice that between the two remaining gift choices, we choose the knife set. I had not said a word in the entire hour of wandering the property. I had not spoken a yes or a no, had remained entirely silent, but now I blurted out in perfect English, you said we were getting the movie camera. <laughs> Shh, my father said, cutting his eyes at me. The woman blinked at me, nonplussed, and it struck me that she had not believed we were Spanish speakers, had maybe not believed we were married from the start. Trust me, get the knife set, she said. Honestly, we've had some complaints about the movie camera, but I wanted the movie camera, I'd headed off that day, promising my brother and sister I would come back with a movie camera. I said it again. 
You promised the movie camera. Whatever you say, the woman said with a sigh. This time she directed her words at me. She was sick of us. She knew we were lying and she wanted us gone. She worked on commission. This had been a waste of her day. She stomped off to the stockroom to fetch our free gift. We kept straight faces until we were off the property and heading south on the freeway. Then my father began to speak in his mangled Puerto Rican accent, recounting the details of our scam. I told it back to him. It was history already, lore. Boy, boy, had we pulled one over on that stupid woman, I said. Boy, did she look shocked to learn I was his wife. Boy, did his Spanish accent suck. We laughed so hard that at one point my father started to get an asthma attack and we had to pull over to the side of the road so that he could use his inhaler. It was funny and it was ours, our father-daughter experience. In my, laugh, in my lap, I held our prize, the generic white box with the movie camera inside. Over the course of the next week, my mother and my father both separately tried to make the camera work, but it would not even turn on. Eventually, we threw the thing out. Um, and I'm just gonna read a few pages from this novel that I've been um, working on for many years, and it's um, close to being done, I hope. Um, and it's a scene just with a, a, the main character is an actress named Calypso who lives in Los Angeles. And um, it's just a visit with her father. She spotted her father up ahead in the landscape of jugglers and breakdancers. He was wearing the same purple suit he had been wearing the last time she saw him two years ago. It was an off-the-rack suit from the chess king a decade old already, purple acetate, wide shoulder pads, tapered pant legs, the joke of another era. He had called yesterday from a bus depot in New Mexico. He had called over and over again while she sat in the living room watching the answering machine pick up each time, hearing his vo voice ring out into the emptiness, his beseeching request that she see him, that he needed help, that she was still his daughter after all and he was desperate. This time it was serious, it was life or death. He meant it, he really meant it. She'd finally answered on the fifth call. He looked like he had slept in the suit. Even polyester gets rumpled if you wear it long enough. He was standing at the edge of a circle of people watching a performance. Calypso heard the music, Billie Jean. She saw through the crack in the audience that it was a young boy, eight or nine, dressed in a Michael Jackson costume. The kid was wearing a hat tilted down low so you could not see his face, just the wet-looking curls that dripped down to his shoulders. He moonwalked to the cheers of the crowd. She spoke her father's name, Frank. He turned and laughed at the sight of her face as if she'd just told a joke. He leaned in toward her, cupped a hand around his mouth. White people, he whispered, are the only thing wrong with this town. He was chewing gum hard and fast, and his skin had a sheen of dried sweat that reminded Calypso of wax museum figurines. He looked older, smaller, and Calypso imagined coming to meet him here in another two years, him wearing the same purple mall suit, faded and frayed at the hem now. Hungry, he said, I'm famished. Calypso bought him a soda and a hot dog from a vendor. They walked toward the sand, found a place where there was no garbage, and planted themselves facing the ocean. Calypso ate the hot dog and listened to Frank explain his latest business venture. It was going to be big, something involving Nigerians and Ed Asner and 600 hectares of land. She looked beyond the human mess toward the horizon. The hot dog tasted good. 
David didn't know she was here. He would not approve. She would not tell him because she could not explain why she was here. Frank was still talking, but somehow he was on to something else, a plan involving a Native American gaming resort, tribal membership. So I told them I've got memories of a Cherokee grandmother. I mean, real detailed memories of this old squaw, but these motherfuckers want a blood test or some shit. I told them I don't have money for a blood test. Anyway, I just need a loan, baby, just to prove to these fools that I am what I say I am. And then, man, the whole world opens up to you. I mean, they've got the funds, and they just need help spending it. He always called her baby when he was asking for money. Thank you. Yes, I'd like to thank um, Blue Flower for inviting me. Um, though I haven't really finished my memoir yet, so this is probably the best of all possible worlds because it isn't done yet. <laughs> well, it, it can be anything still. But I, I, do, I still want to think of, talk about the idea of when we're talking about the idea of, of truth um, and narrative. Um, and I thought I'd begin by sort of giving you an example that isn't autobiographical, but I think is known in popular culture. Uh, a good example um, being um, the film Fargo by the Coen brothers. Everyone, how many people seen the Coen brothers Fargo? Do you remember the beginning of the movie? When the Coen brothers say, this is a true story? Well, it isn't. It's not true, it's not true at all. But the reason they give you the story, they tell you a true story, because they want you to follow the story. And they thought if they say the word true story, no matter how outrageous it gets, how absurd it becomes, you will sit there and go, wow. <laughs> so it's not true, but you know, it's, it's what we say. if I say it's a true story, it's a true story. So I thought I'd read a couple of, of the, the memoirs about my, my family, of course, and growing up in Rochester, New York. And, but I've been writing autobiographical stuff about my parents all along, and I thought I'd begin with a story, a poem, um, about my mom, who told me a story about how she and my father met. Um, and I'm, I'm about to read the story that she told me. Um, and I wrote the poem, and then she, after the poem was published, she, I asked her again, she told me it was a totally different story. <laughs> it's unreliable narrator. I'm a fool to love you. Some folks will tell you the blues is a woman, some type of supernatural creature. My mother would tell you, if she could, about her life with my father, a strange and sometimes cruel gentleman. She would tell you about the choices a young black woman faces. He's falling in with some man, a deal with the devil, in blue terms. The tongue we use when we don't want nuance to get in the way. When we need to talk straight. My mother chooses my father after choosing a man who was, as we sing it, of no account. This man made my father look good. That's how bad it was. He made my father seem like an island in the middle of a stormy sea, he made my father look like a rock. And is the blues the moment, you shrug, I'm sorry, and is the blues 
<sighs> the moment you realize you exist in a stacked deck, you look in the mirror at your young face, the face my sister carries, and you know it's the only leverage you've got. Does this create a hurt that whispers, how you gonna do? Is the blues the moment you shrug your shoulders and agree, girl without money is nothing. Dust to be pushed about by any old breeze. Compared to this, my father seems briefly to be a fire escape. This is the way for the blues works its sorry wonders. Makes trouble look like a feather bed. Makes the wrong man's kisses a healing. And I'm going to read um, two poems from You Don't Miss Your Water. Now, Don't Miss Your Water is, is, is not, again, it's, it's that kind of confusion between um, memoir and poetry. And it's um, uh, my publisher at, at, um, at, at Henry Holt uh, decided, and I decided too, and she agreed with me, that this was poetry and not uh, memoir. But what would have happened if I had simply gone along and decided to market it as a memoir? Maybe I wouldn't be a poor poet anymore. I mean, <laughs> who knows? But two poems that sort of frames my, my mother and father. Papa was a rolling stone. A few weeks before my father dies, my sister tells me a fuzzy story about a young woman she'd heard rumors about, a class of two ahead of her in high school who carried our unusual last name. And when my niece goes through some of my father's papers, she uncovers a small laminated card, a birth certificate from a Midwestern state for a boy born a year before I was that was a different last name. What about this? We want to know. And we badger my father in the hospital until he finally admits to us that the woman my sister tried but never got to meet in high school was indeed a half-sister. My father tells us that when my niece was an infant and my sister was living away in Florida, he bundled my niece up and take her to this woman's apartment. He was that proud of being a grandfather and he knew my niece would be too young to remember. She married a rich man and they moved the way to Israel is as far as he's willing to take us on this. She's happy and I don't want to bother her. And the birth certificate. I see language in the way the bones in his thin body twist, his mouth says, beats me. He's pissed off that it's come down to this, that his children would have enough time to try and unravel a man's business. And then he clucked, which I took to mean, what makes you think I owe you this? The Chapel of Love. And now, alas, it is too late. My, my wife and I are trying to tell my mother how wise it would be for her to finally marry my father now that he is lying half a shade in the hospital. His doctors feel he'll be dying slow, and he's beginning to burn up his pensions. Soon, he will have to go on Medicaid, and the rules are firm. Single men who have made no provisions must sign practically everything over to the government, must, in their ironic terms, spend down to an income they haven't seen since they were starting out must whittle their desires to small items, chewing gum, haircuts, 
playing cards, must transform themselves, whether they want it or not, from homeowners to paupers. Though they've lived together for over 40 years, as far as the government's concerned, without a paper, my mother is simply the woman he's been keeping. If they're not married, and soon, she'll lose the house. My father tells us he's willing, but when we bring this up with my mother, she answers with the voice I know she had on the day that she finally saw how things were with my father, that they would never wed the young woman who decided with her last drop of self-worth that a part of his one good thing had come and gone. What a cold day that must have been in her heart. She will never visit him in the hospital. And now, in a voice that could damn a saint, she is telling us she'd rather starve on her anger than feed off his slow regret. Now, this is the memoir. This is, this is sort of give you sort of, sort of a location. Um, and I'm trying to, in the memoir, which is untitled and unfinished, I'm trying to sort of collect sort of the background, I think, for what some of the uh, poetry would come from, that later poetry would come from. Um, and here's an example. I come from, like I said, I come from upstate New York, but both my family comes from Florida. My mother comes from around the Gainesville area, and my father comes from around Tampa, and they met up, up in the east, um, if my mother's telling me the truth. <laughs> uh, but, uh, of course, they brought the culture with them. Florida, years later, as an unwed mother, partly to escape her daughter Marie, my big sister Gloria will move down to my mother's hometown of Gainesville, Florida, and when she does, no one will make sport of her because she grew up in the North. In fact, they will fit in and stay for years. The reason for this is while my parents' house might sit in upstate New York, the truth of the matter is that we were raised in Florida. The smells rising from the skillets, Florida. The car parts on the lawn, Florida. The switch across the legs, Florida. The fact was that we resided in the deep black south, even when we were walking around in a blizzard or sitting at a lunch counter without giving it a second thought. The dry barbecue pit in the backyard, Florida. The black cats and the ghosts, Florida. The sunflowers in the front yard and the collard greens in the back, Florida. And in the house next door, maybe Georgia, maybe the Carolinas. And in the house in the middle of the block, maybe Alabama, maybe Texas. That boyfriend who keeps his conked hair in a net, maybe that's Memphis, maybe that's Louisiana. The pig knuckles and the pickled eggs, the hot combs and the Holy Ghost, that's where we actually lived up north. And that's what the neighbors see when my sister steps off the Greyhound. She is poor, but well-dressed. Her trunk might be dented, but the clothes inside of it are clean. Although I'm not there to see it, I know whenever a fool approaches, he saluted with a black woman's cackle. This is her passport, and everybody on her new block stamps it. The Arrows. My sister, her best friend Linda, and I are out in the neighborhood at night stalking cars. We wield homemade bows, tall green stems we call ragweed, cut and curved with string found lying around our homes. For arrows, we have weighed and selected the right dry branches and notched one 
and not one end for the, for, the, uh, for the twine. For arrowheads, we use pop bottle caps, welded on by rocks or the weight of our sneakers. We are at war, and in the easy, confused, jumble kids make of history, we set out to destroy Nazi tanks with bows and arrows. Tonight, we fight both the Germans and the cowboys. We are doing the stuff kids love to do without thinking, without asking. If caught, we'll call it play. Whose idea is this? Probably my sister's. At least she's at the age when my parents begin to falter curiosity and willpower. What are we doing out at night? Since everyone in the neighborhood knows everyone else, and we rarely travel any further than four or five blocks, the shops on West Main Street, the edge of a bit too far at one end, the railroad tracks at Calistra Street at the other, our parents let us roam the summer streets until we run out of gas. I am seven or eight years old. Linda and my sister just entering their teens. In a few years, I will be a guy and too old to be a mascot. But for now, we are a team. We are at war. We are Indians. We are tank killers. We are trapped behind enemy lines. We are also scientists. We are curious to know the physics involved when an arrow hits a speeding car. We scrunch our small bodies into the damp along the trestles of the bridge and wait. We hear the first car before we see it. We hide, we hide, and then we spring. I will not grow up to be a hunter, but I do know how the blood pounds in the ear the second before you draw in a breath and take a bead. We are too scared to miss. The light-colored sedan rocks and reels. For a long moment after the sound of the skid fades, there is nothing but the car, the bridge, the summer stars winking. Then the door opens, and part of a human arm begins to swing out. I'll read three more of these. Oh, OK, I'll read one more, OK? Sorry. And this is another true story. Poetry. It's Valentine's Day, fourth grade, Nathaniel Rochester, school number three. Today, we learn about poetry. Mrs. Edwards, our teacher, who is my age now, but very old then, has reached a unit in her teaching guide concerning rhyme and meter. But I already know what I need to know. Like a good kid, my body automatically squirms at the word. Why? Have I ever read a poem before this? No, neither has any other child in the class, but the word just has that sound about it. Like vegetables. That makes us want to shove our hands in our pockets and pout. It's a grown-up word, a suck-the-fun-from-out-of-the-room word, like behave. Every kid winces as if the lips of a dreaded ant were upon them. Today, class, Mrs. Edwards says in that hopeful tone I've grown to use myself over the years, you will choose a valentine and write them a poem. But no one loves anybody this morning. <laughs> the word poetry has clammed our affection up. Mrs. Edwards, however, has this going for her. She comes prepared. She is the third teacher we've had so far this year. Our first grew ill or pregnant, a second, young, idealistic, maybe fresh from college, only lasted a few days. We could smell her fear. She wanted to be our friend, which is the weakest thing a new teacher could ever do. One afternoon, in the middle of a lesson she knows we're not listening to, her voice begins to crack. Then she begins to sob. Her weeping eyes look out on a class that holds absolutely no pity. Twenty-odd smug faces asking, what are you doing here? She slams her book on the desk and runs. 
pleasure buzzes among ourselves. In the war between grown-ups and kids, this day is a lock of Custer's scalp. <laughs> Mrs. Udridge understands that the only things a fourth grade class will understand is respect earned through a little unspecified fear. Some people have a voice that tells a kid, don't try it. Mrs. Edwards does this, hear this voice on her first date with us. This is why, for this new exercise, we'll moan quietly in our heads and take out a sheet of paper. Poetry. Mrs. Edwards, not wanting to waste all morning on this, has taken pity on us by writing a group of words on a blackboard that end in the letter S. Use the words in the bird, she says, to write your poem. Give the poem to your valentine, or if you're too shy, to Mrs. Edwards, who will pin them unsigned on the bulletin board. Poetry. Our dumb pencils skate the paper. We shift in our seats, we sniffle bored. Why do they ask this stuff of us? What do they want to know? How nosy can you get? Out of the forest near silence, the low rumble of business in the other classrooms, the sound of fingers brushing away erased words, the awful tick of the wall clock come four lines into my head. S-O-S, I'm in a mess, and I need you, I must confess. Is that it? Is this what she wants? I'd rather be in gym class, bunched up with, in a corner with the rest of the skinny boys, fighting for our lives against the jocks in a game of dodgeball. Good, says Mrs. Edwards, when she takes it. Where does it go? Into some young girl's hand who couldn't care less, and I don't remember, and somehow, somewhere, deep in my wannabe, a soldier, fireman, doctor, head. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org.